Robert Leowitz, no, Leibowitz owes his life to a message on a t-shirt. This was the subtitle for a news article um, I saw a few months ago. And Robert's kidneys were functioning at only 5%. He, they're, they're failing. And so he was kind of like on his last legs. He's about to die unless he finds a donor to give him a new kidney. And, but since he had this advertising background, he thought that his name was going to come up on the donor list. He came up with a solution. He printed these words on a plain white t-shirt. In need of a kidney, O positive. You know, so <laughs> that's what he needs. That's his blood type. And then he had a cell phone number below it. And then he went with his family to Disney World, and he walked around for a week. So all these people are seeing this message on his t-shirt, just plain white, in need of a kidney, O positive, here's my cell phone number. And so people would take photos, and then one person took a photo and posted it on their Facebook page. And by the end of the week, it had 90,000 shares. It got shared with all these people. And Roberts, he starts receiving hundreds of calls. He, he's been suffering with kidney disease for 15 years. He was on the transplant list, but it takes a while, and he's... He was thinking, I'm not going to live long enough to, for somebody to be a match for me on this list. And so he resorted to finding a live donor. Um, so it was required that he find somebody that was a perfect match for his body on multiple levels to give him their kidney. And he had to find someone who was willing. So he was a perfect match, and they had to be willing. And after this post got shared, three people flew to New York that were willing. Um, they flew to where he lived, and then they got tested, but then they were denied because they weren't a perfect match. And some people called Robert um, and were interested in helping, but then they kind of flaked out. They didn't follow through. Um, and then, but eventually Robert did find someone who was a perfect match and was willing to give him um, a kidney. And Robert, he was desperate. He knew he had this one chance to live. And so he took that chance and he ended up finding the person um, who could solve his problem. And today, as we're uh, continuing to prepare for Easter, it's Palm Sunday, as I said, Jesus, you know, Holy Week. Uh, it's one week, Palm Sunday, to Easter. And in there is, you know, Jesus enters Jerusalem, um, and he gets betrayed, and he gets arrested. He has the, first he has the Passover with his disciples. Um, that's all that's happening on Thursday. Um, and then Friday, uh, Jesus is crucified, and he dies, and, and he's buried. Um, and then Sunday, he rises again. So this whole week um, is Holy Week. Um, and all, we, all that he goes through during this week, we've been going through the last three chapters of Luke, um, we're seeing... It you know, takes three chapters to describe what happened during this week. It kind of like the whole story like slows down you know, at that moment. And like, okay, let's really dive into what happens in this last week of Jesus' life. You know, three years are covered in 21 chapters, and then you take a week to cover the last, um, uh, uh, three chapters to cover the last week. Um, but all we hear um, in this is Jesus does it for, for you, he says. He did it for you. He did it for us. He did it for you and me. And this week we're going to see Jesus crucified, and then he dies and then he's buried. And right in the middle of our passage, there's this incredible conversation um, with a criminal who's crucified right next to Jesus. And he's like Robert with kidney failure. He knows he has a problem. He has no power to fix it. And his only hope is that someone else can. And so he asks Jesus for help. But it's, you know, if you think about it, we can maybe some, most of us are you know, so used to this story that we miss the strangeness of it. It's strange that this criminal being crucified would turn to another guy being crucified as the one who can save him. You know, like he, Jesus has been whipped just like this criminal has been. Jesus has been beaten just like this criminal has been. Jesus is being crucified and is about to die just like this criminal is about to die. And so how can Jesus be of any help um, when they're both sitting and suffering the same fate? And the big question this passage answers is this. How can Jesus save others? How can Jesus save others? 
some people kind of ask that in a mocking way. Um, but we want to ask in a sincere way, how can Jesus save others? And we're going to walk through this passage and then come back to our big question. I'm going to imagine we're a film crew, and we've been following Jesus' life, um, and we've been documenting and seeing what's going on, and now he's heading up to Jerusalem, and we think, okay, we want to be in on this action because we think he's going to go, and he's going to overthrow the Roman government. This is when he's going to have his big moment. He's going to start this revolt. He's going to start a riot, and he's going to kind of boot up the Romans, and it's like, okay, we're documenting this, and we want to be there when it happens and get all this action on film. Um, but it turned, we thought that was going to be the big news, but it turns out to be big news for other reasons because what actually happens is there's kind of all this intrigue. Jesus is betrayed, um, and then he's arrested at night in secret, and then he kind of goes through this rigged trial, um, and now he's being crucified and let out um, like a criminal. And so all of this is like, we thought this was going to be big news, and this is been a change of events. And we just filmed Pontius Pilate, um, the Roman governor, uh, trying to release Jesus. He goes through these trials, and Pilate tries to release him. He says, I'm not, he's not guilty of these charges. You're, the religious leaders are saying, Jesus is trying to stir the people up to get them to revolt against Rome. And he's like, I don't find, these charges are empty. There's, he, this isn't um, what he's trying to do. And he determines that Jesus is innocent. But even so, he gives into the pressure of the crowd who are asking for him to be executed. And so he sends Jesus to his death by crucifixion. Our passage picks up um, as we're watching, as we're filming the Roman soldiers leaving Pilate's headquarters and escorting Jesus out of the city um, where he's going to be crucified. He's required to carry the horizontal beam of his cross. Um, crosses had several shapes, um, but it seems like he kind of had a T-shaped one. Um, but because Jesus has been up all night, he's been questioned, he's been beaten, um, he's now been whipped by Roman soldiers, he's too weak unable to carry his own cross. So they grab this other guy, Simon of Cyrene, out of the crowd and they say, okay, he, they can script him into, you're going to help him carry his cross. So Jesus is walking in front, this guy's walking behind, carrying him, we're you know, filming this whole thing happen. And as Jesus is led away, the reality of his fate is becoming public um, to the city. He was arrested secretly at night, um, but now Jerusalem is reacting to what's happening. And a group of women is following him and mourning and lamenting his death. But in verse 28, Jesus turns to them and says, now don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because Jesus is a messenger of God's kingdom, but he's come to the people with this message, and the leaders have rejected him, and they've arrested him, and they've orchestrated his execution. And Jesus warns, these actions are going to have consequences. And indeed, Jerusalem was besieged, and the temple was destroyed about 40 years later in AD 70. And Jesus is doing God's will. And so he says, don't weep for me. You should be weeping for this city that has rejected God. And so in Jesus, all the way in this whole story, we see Jesus, a picture of God's love for his enemies in Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't say, all these people are going to get what's coming to them and good riddance. He says, no, you should be crying for the fate of people who have rejected me and who have rejected the God who sent me. And the same fate um, of judgment awaits anyone who rejects Jesus today. This is the case. You know, everyone has to make a decision about Jesus um, and people who reject him, there's, we should be weeping for them, have this gut-wrenching sadness about people's fate um, who reject Jesus. And when they arrive at the place called the Skull, Jesus, along with two other criminals who are let out of him with the city, uh, of, of the city, are crucified. And, and if we're a film crew documenting this event, um, we would see this wooden cross, and they had lots of different shapes. You know, the, the small, the lowercase t is the one we usually think of, but there's also kind of like a capital T. It could be, it could be a Y. 
you know, so it's like this and the arms would be up on that, or it could be an X, and so it's, you know, all just different ways to get the arms um, raised up um, on these things. And we would have watched, if we're documenting this, we'd watch these Roman soldiers attach Jesus to it um, by driving nails into his hands. And the cross would have had this kind of like little ledge to sit on, but it would have been pointed down at an angle so that you had to use your arms to pull yourself up to stay on the sledge, otherwise you're just going to keep slipping off. And so as time goes on, your arms get more and more tired, and you get more and more weak, and so you're not able to pull, keep yourself up. And if you're hanging like that, it, how crucifixion kills you is by suffocation, because you're not able to, to breathe because your whole body, there's all this pressure on it. And so slowly over time, um, you would eventually suffocate. As we watch the soldiers attach Jesus to the cross, we hear Jesus pray in verse 34. It says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These men have beaten Jesus, they stripped him of his clothes, they put nails in his hands, and hoisted him up for everyone to watch him die. And yet Jesus doesn't curse them. If you think about, you know, how easy is it for your anger to flare up? Like my anger can flare up when somebody does something wrong, you know, in traffic in front of me. And Jesus doesn't curse them. He doesn't get angry at them. But he, Jesus shows love and compassion, even for the people who have rejected him and are crucifying him. He desires that they would be forgiven, and he prays for them. He wants them to realize their mistake and turn. And if you've ever felt that you're too bad for God to love, this moment proves that you aren't. Jesus is a perfect picture of God's love. And the picture he paints is of God who loves even his enemies. Even as the soldiers divide up his clothes among themselves, Jesus looks on them with the desire that they turn to God and that they be forgiven. And as a film crew, imagine now we step back to survey the whole scene. We want to capture the whole scene and see, okay, this is everything that's happening. We see Jesus crucified beside two criminals. Roman soldiers at the base of the cross overseeing the execution. And a group of Jerusalem's religious leaders talking amongst themselves and then a crowd of people watching. This is the whole, the whole scene we're seeing. And now after getting this wide shot, we want to start moving closer to get a closer one. We, so first we pass the crowd watching. And then as we're walking through the religious leaders, we hear their conversation with each other. They're scoffages and they make fun of him to each other. And we hear what they're saying at the end of verse 35. They're saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. As we move closer to the cross, their voices are behind us, and we can now start hearing the soldiers who are standing around the base of the cross. And we can also see this sign above Jesus' head um, that says this is what the crime he's guilty of. And it says, this is the king of the Jews. And that's the charge the religious leaders brought to Pilate, that, that Jesus is claiming to be a king. And he's trying to start a revolt against Caesar. He's trying to defeat the Roman Empire. And the soldiers think this is a funny joke. Well, some king he is. He's naked and nailed to a cross. Like, this is, you know, all funny. And so they're mocking him, and they're offering him some cheap, sour wine as a joke. Here's some wine, your highness. And verse 37 tells us what they're saying to him. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then looking up, we're with the soldiers, and we look up, and we focus our camera on Jesus and the two criminals crucified next to him. And we hear them saying, and one of them saying in verse 39, it says, um, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And everyone's commentary is the same. Well, he saved others. If he's really God's special chosen one, he should be able to save himself. If you really are the king, save yourself. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
If Jesus really is who he says he is, everyone thinks that he should be able to save himself. And they all find it comical that Jesus claimed to be a powerful king, and yet he is hanging helpless and weak and unable to save himself or anyone else. They're asking the big question this passage answers with a mocking tone. How can Jesus save others? How can he possibly be a savior for others if he can't even save himself? Just look at him. We've heard one criminal speak, but then the other criminal responds to him. Verse 40 says this, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And hanging next to him, this criminal looks at Jesus, and he doesn't just see a man who's too weak to carry his own cross and who's been bloodied and who's about to die. He sees a king who can save him. He sees that Jesus truly is who he says he is and that he can truly do what he said that he can do. This criminal is like Robert with the failing kidneys. He's dying and he has one chance for salvation, so he takes it. His problem is that he is guilty and there's no chance of him doing any good deeds to make up for them. This is it. He's about to die. You can't promise Jesus, you know, I've done all these bad things, but I'm going to live a better life now. I can make up for all that stuff. And I promise, you know, all these things I'm going to do for you. He wants to be part of Jesus' kingdom. He wants to be part of the salvation that Jesus promises. But he can't do anything to earn it because this is the end of his life. All I can do is totally rely on Jesus' mercy to let him in to his kingdom. And Jesus responds in verse 43 as we saw. He says, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And this guilty man asks to be part of Jesus' kingdom, and he gets it. And the criminal hopes that Jesus will remember him um, one day in the future and let him into his kingdom, but Jesus makes an even greater promise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus is going to the presence of his heavenly Father, and this man is going with him. But think about how odd this is. Jesus is in no position to grant anything. He's in no position to make promises. He's hanging on a cross, about to die. How can he make and keep this promise? How can he continue talking like he's a king with a kingdom? This man addresses him like he's a king and makes a request of him. And then Jesus says, yes, I'll give that to you. How can Jesus even be thinking like that and talking like that? Well, verses 44 and 45 give us heaven's commentary in this situation. They tell us how Jesus can make this promise. Verse 44 says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The sixth hour is, is noon, um, and so they're saying from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, sixth hour to the ninth hour. And God is making clear that this event isn't just any per, old person being crucified and dying. This event has cosmic significance. The darkness shows that Jesus is under the shadow of God's Judgment. Jesus is not just serving the sentence of a guilty rebel against Rome, but a guilty rebel against heaven. Jesus is bearing God's judgment for our rebellion against God. The result is that the curtain of the temple is torn in two. In Israel's temple, there is this room, the back room, that was called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And this was covered by this massive curtain because it was where the presence of God dwelt. And nobody um, could go in this room Except one time a year, the high priest could go in. There's this whole ritual about it so that they could go in there. Um, they could come back out. And so the message was clear. 
sinful people, guilty sinners, cannot enter into the presence of God. And only once a year the high priest could, and it was when a sacrifice was offered. The sacrifice was the only way he could get in there, um, and that it was only that one time a year. But as Jesus takes God's judgment for our sin in our place, the barrier keeping us from God's presence is torn in two because Jesus serves the sentence of a guilty rebel. Guilty rebels now have access to God. And so now that wall, that curtain is torn off. And this is how Jesus can promise the criminal on the cross that today, after they die, he will be with Jesus in God's presence. Because Jesus is bearing the penalty for sin, for this criminal's sin, he he can be forgiven and enter Jesus' kingdom. And after several hours, uh, our film crew, we've been watching this whole thing unfold, and Jesus, you know, his breathing is getting weaker and weaker as he's struggling. Um, we hear Jesus' last words in verse 46. It says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. With his last breath, Jesus quotes the faith-filled words of an Old Testament psalm and entrusts his life to God. The Roman captain over the soldiers, the centurion, has been witness to all that's happened. He's been overseeing this whole thing, escorting Jesus out and the crucifixion and everything that's happening. Um, he's, he's heard Jesus' message to the mourning women that they should be weeping for themselves and not for him. He's heard Jesus' prayer of forgiveness for, for the centurion, for the soldiers. Um, he's heard the mocking insults. He's heard the conversation with the criminal and the promise of paradise. And now as Jesus died, he sees that Jesus is more than a crucified criminal. He praises God and he declares Jesus is innocent. He, you know, suddenly he realizes, wow, this is, he's being crucified as a criminal, but really he is innocent. And with Jesus' death, the crowds begin dispersing. Those who came out to see the spectacle leave mourning. Jesus' followers who came with him from Galilee are watching at a distance. And then Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate for Jesus' body. He, he's one of the religious leaders, but it says he didn't take part in the rigged trial. He wasn't agreeing to that decision. He wasn't there. Um, and he didn't want to hand Jesus over to be crucified. Unlike them, he's actually a follower of Jesus. He's waiting to be a part of the kingdom that Jesus said was coming. Jesus was executed as a criminal, but then Joseph gives him a proper burial with honor in a tomb that nobody else has been laid in. And all of this happens on a Friday. And for Jewish people, the way they, sometimes you get confused about how days are working in the Bible. Um, usually for Jewish people, um, they, days started um, at sundown. So Friday would have ended, you know, today would end when the sun goes down. And then Saturday, uh, Monday would start when it's dark out. And so for them, you know, Friday is going to end at like whatever time it's going to get dark there, 6 p.m. And then Saturday is starting, which was the Sabbath for them. And so they're all kind of like, okay, Jesus died and now we have to hurry up because on the Sabbath we don't work according to the Old Testament commandment. And so the, um, Joseph goes and tries to get, um, gets Jesus buried, puts him in a tomb. Um, and then these, some ladies who are watching who follow Jesus from Galilee, they're preparing the spices because they want to anoint Jesus' body. They're trying to get, you know, Jesus died as a criminal, but we're going to do all these things to honor him and give him a proper burial. Um, but they prepare the spices and they wait till Sunday because they're not going to, uh, they're not going to do it on the Sabbath. And the big question this passage answers is, how can Jesus save others? And it's a valid question. How can this man, crucified as a criminal, offer salvation to anyone else? How can he promise paradise to a criminal dying with him? 
He can't even save himself, so how can he expect to deliver on his promises of salvation? And just like Robert with the kidney failure, we have a problem, and we are desperate for a solution. The Bible gives us a deadly diagnosis. And in the words of the criminal on the cross, if we receive the due reward of our deeds, we would all be under the same sentence of condemnation. All of us. No amount of good deeds can erase our sin. The record's there. We're beyond taking a few spiritual vitamins and supplements. We're beyond changing our spiritual diet and starting a spiritual exercise routine to make ourselves better people. We need to be completely made new. We need someone else to step in if we're going to have any chance of living. Robert with the kidney failure, he couldn't you know, start taking vitamins and start exercising. It's too late. He needs somebody else to save him. And the criminal on the cross had one hope. He had no time to clean up his life or look for different solutions. So he throws it all on Jesus. And Robert with kidney disease had one shot. He couldn't make himself better. He needed someone else to step in. This was his only hope. And Jesus says he's the one we need to step in. So let's answer that big question. How can Jesus save others? And this passage gives us three answers. First, Jesus saves because he lovingly chooses to save. How can Jesus save others? Jesus saves because he lovingly chooses to save. Robert, with kidney failure, needed someone willing to give him a kidney. He needed to find someone that would give him what he desperately needed. And throughout these last four weeks, we've seen how Jesus lovingly chose to go to his death to save us. He, laid, he said his death was for us, and he submitted to God's will, even as he saw it coming and, and was dreading it. And as he does so, as he's going to his death, he shows his love and his compassion for people who are far from God. And Jesus oozes nothing but love as he goes to his death. And so he's willing to save us. And second, Jesus saves because he is perfectly able to save. Jesus saves because he is perfectly able to save. How does Jesus save others? He, Jesus saves because he is perfectly able to save. There were several people who were totally willing to give Robert a kidney. Three people even flew to New York for testing, but their willingness does no good if they aren't a perfect match for his body. His body would just reject the kidney. And those three people were denied because they weren't a perfect match. But eventually, Robert found someone who was both willing and a perfect match. And even if Jesus is full of love and he's willing to die in order to save others, it does no good if he isn't actually qualified to do so. Even me telling you, like, guess what? I love you all and I'm going to die for you and it's going to save you. Great, that, you know, that's nice of you, Mitch, but if I'm not qualified to save you, to offer you salvation, to say to you, hey, you can be in God's presence because of my death, um, it, does you, it does you no good. And Jesus says that his death is going to save others, but he is just a crazy, deluded person if it isn't true. And throughout this passage, those ridiculing and mocking him actually state his qualifications. They say, he is the Christ of God, he's God's chosen one, he's the king. Jesus is the one God who is sent to take care of our sin problem. And his life proves it. That's why, you know, he saved others. Why doesn't he save himself? His life was showing that he is sent to save other people and free them from their sin. And after his death, the centurion states his other qualification. He says, certainly this man was innocent. Jesus can take the penalty of our sin because he has no sin of his own. He's the spotless lamb from the Passover who can save others from death. These things make Jesus perfectly able to save. People are rejecting Jesus because he doesn't save himself. But he, if he saved himself, he couldn't save others. He, you know, they're saying, 
he saved others, why doesn't he save himself? Well, because if he saved himself, then he couldn't save others. He had to die, um, and, that, and he was able to die for other people because he was God's chosen one and because he was innocent. He could stand in our place. So first, Jesus saves because he lovingly chooses to save. Second, Jesus saves because he is perfectly able to save. Third, and finally, Jesus saves when we trust him to save. Jesus saves when we trust him to save. How does Jesus save others? Jesus saves when we trust him to save. Robert, with kidney failure, had no options left. He was at the end of the line. The only way he was going to live was if he found someone who was willing and able to save him and if he gave, you know, accepted that person's offer. And what saves the criminal on the cross? What gets him into Jesus' kingdom? What gets him into paradise with Jesus? What gets him into God's presence when he dies? Well, he sure doesn't. He can't do anything for it. His, he says it himself. My life proves I'm guilty. I'm about to die. I can't do anything to make up for it. He doesn't even pretend like he has anything to offer. He just fully owns that the only thing he contributes to his salvation is the need for it. His record does nothing but condemn him. And he doesn't try to convince Jesus that he deserves salvation because good deeds make up for his bad. And he can't promise Jesus that he's going to do better in the future. He just just has to fully rely on Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's his only shot, is if Jesus remembers him and chooses to save him. And we're all in the same situation as this criminal. Our diagnosis is bad. If God gave us the due reward for our deeds, we would be justly condemned to eternity apart from him. We have one hope, trust in Jesus to save us. And so know this truth. Know that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to God. Without him, a great curtain separates us from God. We can't go in it. We can't go in God's presence. We will never see God. He'll always be behind that curtain. But because Jesus took the penalty for our sin, he ripped that curtain in two, giving us access to God. But it only, the access only comes through Jesus. He's the only one who can take us through that curtain. Without him, we remain outside of it. And the clear message of the Bible is that Jesus is the only way. You can't do enough deeds. You can't hide your bad deeds. You can't clean yourself up. You can't convince God that you're better than other people. Jesus is the sole solution to our universal human problem. He's the only one who can save us from our fatal diagnosis. And yet, we so often keep searching for a Savior after we've already found him. When we hear of Jesus' loving desire to save us, we're assured that he's perfectly able to save us, and yet we keep searching. It would be like Robert receiving his kidney transplant, then heading back to Disney with his white t-shirt on, in need of a kidney, O positive, here's my number. Wait, what? You just got the kidney you needed, and you're fine now. Why are you still searching um, for someone to save you? We found our Savior, but we can keep acting like we need saving. And we can act like our Bible reading and church attendance gets us points with God. We labor to do everything right like our worth and value depend on it. We compare ourselves like we need to compete for salvation. We pretend and hide our sin like God hasn't already taken care of it. We strive to behave like God will love us less if we don't. We present our best selves to others like their opinions matter more than his. We beef up our resume with good deeds like those are what buy our access to God. We work to get close to God again after a bad week like we can save ourselves from our sin and tear through the curtain by our efforts. And we'll always fall short because our sin problem is a problem we made but one that we cannot fix. We need someone else to step in and save us. And we resist the solution 
Even though God says it's the only one we have, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. But we resist the solution because we have a hard time admitting that we need help. We want to feel like we're in control. We can take care of ourselves. I can handle this. I'm self-sufficient. I can work up the power and the energy to do it. And so even if we are exhausted and scared and overwhelmed and feel like we're drowning, we'd rather try to fix it ourselves, pretend we're okay, and die trying rather than admit we need someone else's help. But like the criminal on the cross, we need to fully own that we have a big problem beyond our fixing, and Jesus is the only solution. We need to surrender to him. And our mission is to surrender all of life to Jesus and invite others to do the same. And surrender means, you know, there's several meanings to that. You, one, in one sense, surrender is, I will do whatever you say. Like, I'm going to surrender my life to you and do whatever you say. But it also means, well, I'm just fully relying on you. I'm just surrendering to you is the only hope that I have. Surrender is saying, I need Jesus. I'm surrendering to you is the only option to get me right with God. So let's take a moment. Nick flipped us back there um, earlier in the service. Take a moment and grab the song, your songbook and flip to the last, very last page. Number 46 it is. And we have our mission statement at the top, but then you see in the middle, the way we uh, do our mission statement is by practicing believing the gospel, living as family, loving as servants, going as messengers, and relying on the Spirit. That's right in the middle there. And all these are answering how we surrender our life to Jesus. And admitting our neediness is hard to do, but if you want to experience the power and presence of God in your life, you need to get good at saying, I need Jesus and other people. And just keep your finger there, you know, keep your finger in that part of our songbook. And if we're going to be a church that experiences the power and presence of God in our community, we need to get good at saying, we need Jesus and each other. And each of our community practices in this, uh, on this page um, express a need. Believing the gospel is saying, I need Jesus. Living as family is saying, I need other people. Loving as servants is saying, other people need me. Going as messengers is saying, others need Jesus. And then we just come right back around to relying on the Spirit and saying, well, I need Jesus. You know, it's all expressing either our neediness or someone else's neediness. And we need to get very good at saying, you know, I'm really needy and I'm really weak and I really need Jesus in my life and I really need other people in my life. And even though I'm needy, I recognize other people are needy too. And so I'm both, Nick and I read this book and one of the, its key phrase was, you're both needy and needed. Other people need you, you need other people, you need Jesus, they need Jesus, and it's all this, you know, this big mix and we're all together trying to point each other towards Jesus and the salvation that he offers. And so this week, as you go through Holy Week, um, remembering uh, that you need Jesus is a great way um, to celebrate this week and prepare for Easter. Um, during the week, try to confess your need to God at least once a day and just say to him, I need Jesus, you know, please help me. And it's basic, yet it's powerful. And it's a great way to remember, well, oh, Jesus went through all this for me. And he didn't go through it, you know, all this for us because, you know, oh, you know they could probably clean themselves up. Um, they could probably do this themselves. They could probably get their act together. They could probably do enough good things to make themselves right with God. You know, why would God send his son um, to die and take the judgment um, for our sin if there was another way? And so we just have to get really good at saying, I need Jesus, and please help me. And when someone receives a kidney transplant, their, their body, even if it's a perfect match, and the person's willing and gives them a kidney, their body can reject the kidney. And only time will tell if it worked, um, and only time will tell if they're really saved. And Jesus is a, a perfect match to be our Savior, and he gave himself in love 
for our salvation. And heaven, while he's being crucified, is giving testimony saying, you know, the darkness shows he's under the shadow of judgment and the curtain tearing shows like something's happening here. And his resurrection three days later after his death is the final proof that shows beyond a shadow of doubt that his death was accepted as a payment for our sin. It shows that his death was not rejected, but he really did provide a way to God. And that's what we will celebrate next week. Let's pray. Father, thanks for giving us access to you. The fact that we are praying right now is only a result of what Jesus has done for us, that he's torn the curtain um, so that we can have access to you and we can one day look forward to, uh, at our death, going to be with you and being in your presence. And then one day even after that, having resurrection bodies just like Jesus and having this all creation made new, um, everything being put right again. So thank you for this. As we turn to the Lord's Supper, would you help us to remember what Jesus has done for us in his death and how it saves us and makes us right with you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.